Revelation chapter 16. We left off last week in verse 16, which says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Last week we saw the demonic spirits using deceiving signs to draw the kings of the world into Israel for battle. And Satan's objective here is to destroy Israel, to destroy the city of Jerusalem, in order to prevent Jesus from establishing his millennial kingdom in the Holy Land. And so Satan draws the kings of the world together to battle to this place called Armageddon. Armageddon, famous place, everybody's heard of it. It's actually a Hebrew compound word, Har Megiddo. Uh, Har means hill. Megiddo uh, means place of battle or place of slaughter. And uh, together we get Armageddon. And Armageddon is actually a real place. The city of Megiddo is set on a hill about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And it overlooks the valley of Megiddo. Now, when... uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, Bonaparte stood up on, uh, at the city of Megiddo looking out at the valley of Megiddo 200 years ago. Uh, he declared it to be the most natural battlefield on earth and certainly many wars have been fought in that location uh, over the years. Gideon, uh, you might, you might uh, be curious to, to know, he defeated the Midianites uh, in Judges chapter 7 in the valley of Armageddon. King Saul in uh, first, first Samuel 31, if you're with us when we went through First and Second Samuel, King Saul died in battle at Armageddon. Uh, as well, King Josiah died in battle in Second Kings chapter 23 at Armageddon. And at the end of the world, we are going to see a Christ-rejecting world die at the valley of Armageddon. And so Armageddon... Uh, because of what God will do there in the pouring out of the seventh bowl of wrath that we're going to look at today, it's no longer just a noun. It's no longer just a geographical place. Well, Armageddon has become a verb. It's a description of the action that God uh, is going to take to slaughter Satan and his followers in the last days. And so they gathered them to Armageddon, verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. So the first thing that we need to take note of here is that God declares, Look, there will be no more delay." In his mercy, God has stretched things out here just as long as he possibly could. He, you know, with every single one of his judgments, even though having taken the church out, raptured the church, and now wrath being poured out on an unrepentant world, God in his grace, God in his mercy, still desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life, God still, with the outpouring of his wrath, the seals, uh, the trumpet judgments, uh, and, and even through the bowl judgments, hey, with each one, God gave opportunity to repent, but here now, God is all done. You ever get there, parents? 
You ever get to the place where it's like grace, 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 please don't do that, please, grace, and then all of a sudden you get to a place where you just lose your lid and mama's all done, right? And so you get there and this is what God declares. It, it, he's, it, the bowl is poured out and God says, it is done. And this is written, by the way, this phrase, it is done, this declaration from God. It's written in the perfect tense. In other words, it describes a completed action with ongoing results. A completed action with ongoing results. A good example of such a thing is Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. He declared, it is finished, and then he gave up his life. Now, what he was declaring was a completed action, but there are ongoing results of that action. And so Jesus dying for our sins, now what happens is if you have then, if you are a repentant sinner, there is then the ongoing action of this completed work on the cross. Well, this works the same way. That the, that the outworking of this action, when God says it's finished, this, this, this absolute declaration in the perfect tense, hey, it's finished. It, look, it is the final act of judgment of the unrepentant, but it will uh, have ongoing results. And for the next several chapters, we're going to see the ongoing results as God pouring out now the seventh bowl of wrath and then the completion of, hey, it's finished, it's done. This is the final act of judgment on the unrepentant. What I want you to notice also in verse 17 of chapter 16, which is where we're at and what we just read, this seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out into the air. The preceding bowl judgments we saw poured out on men and oceans and lakes and streams and sun and the throne of the beast and Euphrates River, now he pours it out into the air. And the significance of that is this, that one of Satan's titles is the prince of the power of the air. And so with this final bowl of wrath, when God says it is finished, this is against Satan himself and his demons that God's wrath is now being poured out. Verse 18, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 19, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's about 100 pounds. That's like refrigerators falling out of the sky right there. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And if you look up that phrase, exceedingly great, in the Greek, it's about what you might expect. It means exceedingly great. Like, it's unmatched. Like, that, that, that was pretty bad kind of stuff. Now, just like the seventh uh, seal in Revelation chapter 8, and the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, 
This seventh bowl judgment includes violent thunderstorms and an earthquake, but the text makes it clear here that those previous manifestations of God's wrath don't even compare to what we've just read, to what God is doing. It's going to be exceedingly bad. The earthquake is going to be the largest that the world has ever seen. It's going to, in fact, change not just the the general topography of, of the earth, it's going to change the complete topography of the earth. It will change the face of the earth. Now, by comparison, the third largest earthquake that has been in our recorded history happened just back in 2004. It happened in Banda Aceh, right off the coast of Banda Aceh in the Indian Ocean. This is that, you know, caused that huge uh, tsunami that killed everybody in Thailand and everything. Well, it was, it was centered uh, right uh, off, the, off the Sumatran coast there. And the earthquake measured 9.1 on the Richter scale. Uh, and it was so large that it actually stopped time. Uh, it caused a polar axis shift that shortened the length of the day by 2.7 microseconds. Now, all of that, you know, sounds incredible. The horrible part of that we know about, saw the images of, uh, that it killed over 300,000 people. 220,000 of those that it killed were from the nation of Indonesia and the Indonesian province of Banda Aceh. I was part of a team, a missions team, that went to the city of Banda Aceh Banda Aceh is a huge, large province, but there's a city that bears the name Banda Aceh, and it, uh, it covers about 25 square miles. We flew into Banda Aceh about three and a half weeks after the tsunami hit. 30,000 people of the city had died in the tsunami, and they were still recovering bodies when we got there three and a half weeks later. I can't describe how horrible the decimation was, but it was horrible. The odor was horrible. It was oppressively just overwhelming. Ships sitting on the roof of a third-story building. You know, just how it had just blown through like that. Now, we got on a UN helicopter, and uh, we were flying from one part of the island to another. And there were, there were islands that were offshore. And they had been completely denuded of vegetation uh, from the tsunami that had come through. And I, I was looking over, I was on a Malaysian military helicopter, it's one of the, the dual prop kind, and I was looking over the pilot's shoulder, I was trying to see the altimeter, trying to gauge how high we were and, and sort of approximate how big this wave must have been to wash over a complete island. And the best I get, I came up with, it was like 100 feet. Like it must have been about a 100-foot wave just to wash over this thing. So when verse 20 says that every island fled away, you, can, you, could, you see this and you can understand that when you're talking about the largest earthquake that the world has ever seen and the tsunamis that will be a part of that, it's easy to think about an entire island just being washed away. Well, <clears throat> Isaiah, in Isaiah 24, he prophesied, about this event that we read about in Revelation 16. He said this, Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are opened, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. 
The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it, was, and it will fall, not rise again. Now, this is not just describing a localized event. People say, gosh, you know, well, there's a huge earthquake in Indonesia. Where was the epicenter? Oh, it happened off the Sumatran coast in the Indian Ocean. This event, it'll be, whoa, where was the epicenter? It's going to be like planet Earth was the epicenter. The whole earth is going to shake. It's going to shake the, the it's going to move, you know, it's not just tech, individual tectonic plates. It's the whole thing. It's the entire foundation of the earth. And what Isaiah says here and what Revelation 16 emphasizes is that, listen, it's happening because God's all done. He has had it up to here. And so we read there in verse 19 that the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. The great city, by the way, theologians debate this. There's, there's a camp that says, hey, they're talking about the great city. That means Jerusalem. Um, but... That's not really what's being referred to here. When they talk about the, the great city here, they're talking about Babylon. That's the context. And so it's, it's talking about how Babylon uh, was shaken. And, and when it says that it was divided into three parts, it's not talking about the destruction from the earthquake. It's reasonable to assume that. And certainly Babylon is going to be destroyed by this earthquake, <clears throat> as are all the other cities, because it you know, says that the cities of the nations fell. That includes Babylon. But the three parts is not a reference to that. It's a reference to the fact that Babylon itself was comprised of three parts or three components. And, and so the idea is that there's, there's a physical Babylon, the physical rule of Babylon, there's the physical resources of Babylon, and then there's the spiritual religion of Babylon. And God's all done with all of it. He's had it up to here with all three of those aspects of, that define what Babylon is. Babylon is three cities in one. It's a city of physical rebellion, it's a city of idol worship, and it's a city of spiritual adultery. You're going to see language used in this regard. See, God considers the worship of anything, any other religious worship that we would have that is not worship of Him, He considers that to be spiritual fornication or spiritual adultery. And, and you know, it's, it's just, hey, you and your spouse, you want to have their fidelity. You want to have their love only for yourself. And if they give their love to someone else, then that is considered to be adultery. And so it's the same thing here. God's all done with all these components of it. And so Babylon was as three cities in one, and the cities of the nations fell. And then we finish off verse 19 there reading that, Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now, this is a picture of the winepress of God's wrath. We read about that in Revelation chapter 14. This is where those opposing God here at the the battle of Armageddon, where they are crushed... And the result was that the blood flowed up to the horse's bridle for 185 miles... So there will be this, this crushing. And John says here 
that this cup is the result of the fierceness of God's wrath. Now, that word fierceness, it's a Greek word, uh, thiamos, which describes a passionate outburst of anger. Uh, and, and then it's the fierceness of his wrath. That word wrath, it's the Greek word orge, and that describes a standing state of anger. Some of you work with this guy who's in a standing state of anger. It's not that. No, this is together. John Wolverd, in his commentary, he's, he basically says the combination of these two words, of, the, of fear, fierceness and wrath, what it, it connotes the strongest kind of outpouring of God's judgment. That's what we have here. And, and so we have the heavens and the earth shaken. We have thundering and lightning and, and a great earthquake. Islands washed away, mountains leveled, and verse 21 tells us 100-pound hailstones on top of it. Now, the hailstones is interesting. Hail is frequently a tool of God's judgment against his enemies, and we see that throughout the the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 10 uh, with Egypt. We see it uh, in Joshua 10 with the Canaanites. Uh, We see God uh, with Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38, hail uh, being... um, uh, you know, part of, of the process. And, you know, the Bible says that the judgment for blaspheming God is stoning. Well, what we have here in Revelation 16 is the ultimate picture of blaspheming God. And so we literally have those blaspheming nations being stoned to death by God himself with refrigerator-sized hell. That's falling down. That brings us to Revelation chapter 17. And we read, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came <coughs> and talked with me. This is John speaking, obviously. Saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication And uh, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Remember, there's three parts to Babylon. What we have in view here in chapters, or in, yes, in chapter 17 is God judging spiritual Babylon, the false religion aspect of Babylon. That's what we have in view here. Verse 3, and so he, the angel, carried me, John, away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. By the way, mystery doesn't mean it's not something you can't figure out. It means you, it, it's something biblically, a mystery is something that you can't figure out unless God explained it to you. And he's going to explain this uh, mystery Babylon to us. Verse 6, I saw, John continues, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints <clears throat> and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So the harlot here represents spiritual Babylon that's going to dominate 
the world in the tribulation period, that false religious system that's demonically inspired. Um, so this is the first of the three parts of Babylon that God's going to crush in his wine press. And the angel says here that spiritual Babylon is the mother of all harlots. In other words, Babylon is the epicenter of false religion. And if you were with us, when we were in Revelation chapter 13, you might recall we looked at, at the beginning of Babylon, how it got its start by the descendants of Noah, uh, chiefly his son Nimrod, uh, opposing God and, and building a tower to reach the heavens and to establish independence from God. And so this became known as the Tower of, of Babel, and this was this, this effort to, to rebel against God and, and to, to seek you know, their own, to seek to find their own uh, place, if you will, just as Satan rebelled against God and, and, and all. Well, it's the foundation of every false religion. And we don't have time to get into it, but it's fascinating as you study the, the, the false religions that emanated from, from, Babel, from Babel and from this place and how they permeate out into the world. And we can look back historically thousands of years ago and see how these false re- religions emanated from it. It's a fascinating study. wish we had more time to do it. We don't. But notice there in verse 1, the, the angel beckons John, hey, come and I will show you. Now, that literally, when he says come and I will show you, it, it literally means come to this place. That's the idea in the original language, and it's one of only two times in the book of Revelation that John is specifically instructed to do that, and that makes this important. One is here when he's told, hey, come see Babylon. The other time he's instructed is in, uh, to do that is in Revelation 21 when he's told, hey, come see the new Jerusalem. And verse 3 tells us the place that this angel told him to come and see spiritual Babylon. Hey, he said the place was in the wilderness. That's interesting because if you remember, where did Jesus, where was he when Satan, (coughs) excuse me, when Satan tempted Jesus, where did it occur? It occurred in the wilderness. You think about in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, hey, you know, when you have uh, uh, demons that are cast out, he said they go to dry and desolate places. And so, so the inference here is that the, the thought is where the angel took John was, was to a demonic place so that he could see precisely what was happening with spiritual Babylon, uh, that, that demonic Babylon, if you will. So what we have here is, is the angel taking John to see the spiritual city of Babylon. And, and it's interesting, Charles Dickens, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a fan there, you know, uh, English lit fan, um, in his book, A Tale of Two Cities, he, he wrote about a clash of cultures in, in Paris leading up to the French Revolution, and he contrasted it with the city of England. And the book opens with this famous line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. <clears throat> it was a time of belief. It was a time of unbelief. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. 
Spiritually speaking, the Bible is also a tale of two cities, a tale of Babylon and a tale of Jerusalem, a tale of false religion and a tale of true religion. And, and Charles Dickens could well write the introduction to uh, these two spiritual cities. Hey, the true, religious, true religion produces the best of times. False religion produces the worst of times. True religion produces the age of wisdom. False religion produces the age of foolishness. True religion produces belief. False religion, unbelief. True religion produces a season of light. False religion produces a season of darkness. True religion produces the spring of hope. False religion produces the winter of despair. What you need to keep in mind here, the the entire theme of chapter 17 is God saying he's all done and he's judging. So what we have in view here in chapter 17 is God's judgment of this false religious system of Babylon. This false religious system that sits on many waters. Now, when we get to verse 15, the angel's going to give us the interpretation of many waters. We're going to see that, he's, that it refers to people and multitude and nations and tongues. And we see that this religious system intoxicates all of them. It intoxicates people, it intoxicates kings, and, and so on. And, and that it's, this religious system sits on the beast. In other words, it's a picture of Satan and the kingdom of Antichrist. And this religious system is, endor- is adorned with all the, the, the symbolism of royalty. In other words, it's exalted. And John says there in verse 6, I marveled with amazement. That word marveled, by the way, what it means is John's going, I don't get it. I see the vision, but I don't get it. So verse, 16, verse 7, angel helps him out here. It says, don't hurt yourself, let me explain it to you. Here's, here's how it goes. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast <coughs> that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life, Uh, from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Well, thanks for clearing that up, angel. Appreciate it. It's like, well, I don't get it. Oh, let me explain it to you. I, I really now don't get it, right? So, so let's try to figure this out. The angel, he starts off, trying to be helpfully explaining this. He goes, let me explain the scarlet beast. Now, understand that the Bible describes Antichrist and the, the empire or the kingdom of Antichrist interchangeably, okay? 
just like Hitler's Third Reich, we use the ter- Third Reich interchangeably, so it can apply to Hitler and to his empire as well. So the idea, that's the idea here. <clears throat> so as this angel describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns, he's not describing the man, he's describing the composition of the beast's empire. Yet having said that, We know from Revelation 13 that the beast is literally a man, right? So when when he says here in verse 8, the beast you saw that was and is not and yet is, again, we know from Revelation 13 that the, 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 the beast is literally a man, and we know that not only that, but it's a man who seemingly is going to be wounded with a fatal wound and miraculously healed. So, so we know that. Simultaneous to that, um, the, this is also a picture of the revived Roman Empire. That, the, that what's going to happen is the beast himself is going to be a guy who was resurrected from the dead. And not literally, it's, he, he pulls a David Blaine and makes everybody believe that he was resurrected from the dead, but he not really was. But the whole world thinks he resurrected from the dead but also his empire resurrected from the dead. He, he presides over a revived Roman empire. Um, and so the, the world is just enamored with uh, this guy because of these two miracles. Um, they just blindly follow him. And so uh, verse 14, this angel continues, says, these will make war with the lamb, speaking of the, the uh, ten uh, horns and the ten, the ten kings. <coughs> these will make war with the lamb, And the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Again, just talking about the the war of Armageddon. It's going down, it's going to happen, and the King of kings, Jesus, and his people are going to prevail. Thank you, Jesus. That's the important part here. This verse 15, Then he, the angel, said to John, to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people's, Multitudes, nations, and tongues. And, and so the seven heads represent seven kings and also seven mountains. The seven kings correspond with seven world empires. And John says here that five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. Here's what we know from history. We know from history. Now, by the way, my preamble to this is there's a lot of different takes on this. And when you're talking about the future and you're talking about this kind of descriptive stuff, lots of opinions out there about what this is ultimately going to shake down to look like. There's some very good arguments. Walid Shabbat has a great argument talking about how this, is, this includes um, the, the Islamic, uh, you know, the Muslims and, and all. And, 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 and I'm not going to take a strong, uh, you know, I'm not going to suffer a paper cut over arguing who it is. Because all I know is that there are, there are kingdoms, there are kingdoms that are coming, there is a final one world government that's coming, there is going to be Antichrist presiding over it. I don't know what it's going to all look like, and, and frankly, um, I'll watch from heaven because I get raptured. That's my understanding. My eschatology is that the Lord takes his, his faithful out in the church, so, so I can watch from heaven. I got the best seat in the house to watch all this going down. But at any rate... John says, five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. And here's a popular uh, assumption, 
is that the, the five had, that had fallen is a reference to five world-dominating empires that have come and gone in history, namely Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greek. And then he says, one is, now remember this was written 2,000 years ago, and so who was the world-ruling empire 2,000 years ago? It was Rome. Right? So one, and they would have been ruling during John's day, so John would have understood this to mean Rome. And then he says, and one is yet to come. Now, the one that is yet to come, hey, that's going to be the empire of Antichrist. Um, Many believe a revived Roman empire. So the seven heads represent seven kings, which correspond with seven world empires. But John also says, that they also represent seven mountains. And again, in John's day, he would have understood that to be a clear reference to Rome. And the reason he would have, well, before the Roman Empire was established, Rome was ruled by a plural monarchy known as the seven kings of Rome. And for over 2,000 years, Rome has been called the city on seven mountains or the city on seven hills. As well, there's visions in Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 2 that also connect the beast's end-time government with the Roman Empire. Um, and, and so, you know, again, that's, that's, that's our thought process. Now, the angel also describes the beast's empire as having ten horns. Now, this represents the accumulated power of ten world leaders who are going to unite with the beast. And so what's going to happen here is that there's 10 world leaders. They are going to throw in, they're going to unite with with the beast and they're all of one mind and they give their power and authority to the beast. And uh, we know this also from the prophet Daniel. God told Daniel that 10 horns were 10 kings that were going to give their power to the beast, and Daniel chapter 7 says that the beast is going to be this charismatic, eloquent, political genius who seizes power of a ten-nation revived Roman Empire. That's the idea. So this is, again, keep it in perspective. What we have in view here is God finishing up chapter 16 saying, I am, I'm all done with y'all. And now it's wrath. Now it's my total wrath. There ain't nobody left who's going to repent. And so you guys are getting the, the, both barrels of my wrath. Chapter 17 is a picture of God's wrath being poured out on false religion. And we close with these verses. Verse 16 says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these are the ten nations that throw in behind the beast, uh, it, it says... These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And you go, well, wait a minute. I thought that this false religion was a fundamental part of the makeup of the nation of Babylon. It is. Stay tuned. For God has put it into their hearts, verse 17, to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Give me your attention here because this is where it comes to application and we wrap it up here. Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opium for the masses. Now he was almost right. 
False religion, false religion is the opiate of the masses. False religion is. See, ultimately what Satan wants is Satan wants for you to worship him. That's what he desires is your worship. And so what he does is he uses false religion <clears throat> strategically for that purpose. At the heart of all false religion is a focus on self. Recently, I, and, and I shared this with you uh, back in, uh, I think, Revelation chapter 2. But there, were, there was a, a, an interesting book. It was written by the sociologist uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And, and they wrote a book called Soul Searching. And it was, a, it was based on extensive interviews of 3,000 Christian teenagers. What makes this significant is that this was written so long ago that those Christian teenagers are now adults and those adults have now started families and this is you know, not just 3,000, this is a large sampling which is reflective of the attitudes of the American church. So, so this, uh, this sociology you know, study, what they wanted to find out was uh, what's the prevailing belief system uh, that's held by teenagers at the turn of the 21st century, I would say now, by the, by the preponderance of the American church. And so they, they uh, from their research, they found five basic points of what they call moral, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a belief system. So what's the belief system that prevails in the church today? Well, here's the, I'll give you the five, de, the five prevailing points of their belief system. Number one, they believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God exists, he created the world, he watches over human. I, that's consistent with my faith, that's good, good so far. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Well, yeah, that's what my Bible says. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, okay, that's cool. That's biblical. Here's where it starts to turn. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Now, that's where we start to turn in an unbiblical direction. The central goal of life is not for you to be happy and feel good about yourself. Now, there are blessings to walking in obedience to God and surrendering your life to the Lord. Um, there's joy that comes, but no, no, no. The central goal of life is not for you to be happy and feel good about yourself. Here's where it gets, starts going really bad. Verse, or verse 4. Their fourth point, fourth tenet, God doesn't need to be involved in our life except when he's needed to fix a problem. In other words fundamental belief system is that, hey, you know what? God's a pinata, and when you want the goodies, you just beat it with prayer, and then out come all the goodies. Or my favorite example, Jesus is just a spare tire in the trunk, and I just drive my car whichever way I darn well please, and if I get a flat, spiritually speaking, I pull Jesus out of the trunk and put him on just until, just until I'm good, and now back in the trunk, you know? And that's, that's this thing. Now, fifthly, here's, here's their point. Good people go to heaven when they die. 
Well, the modern breakdown, the, 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 the fundamental breakdown of that is that there are no good people. You know, people say, well, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's no good people, for starters. See, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. That's bad news. And we all live with that reality. That we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And yes, God loves you. Yes, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. But he is not a celestial genie who just exists to give you three wishes and wants you to live whatever way you want. No, God as your father knows that you have a disease, you have an illness that's killing you and it's called sin. And if you die in your sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Now because God loves you, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins in your place. But you have to come to the place of true religion that says, I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, and I need a Savior. And Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins in my place. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, who gave his life for us, who died for us. So true religion says, I got nothing to bring to the equation, and I am not the center of my universe. I'm the problem, and Jesus is the answer. That's true religion. Satan doesn't want you to get there. Satan wants you to be at the place where you're at the center of your universe. Satan wants you to have this false belief system. And what's going on here in chapter 17, get it clear in your heads, that a day is coming when God is going to say, I'm all done. And all that's left now are all those who've rejected him. And when it gets to that point, Satan's going to turn on the church itself and he's going to say, this false church, and he's going to say, you've done your job. Now everybody has rejected God. They're all worshiping me. And he will jealously attack anything that comes between him and your worship. And so finishing up here, the takeaway for us is, yes, we have an appreciation of what's coming at the end of the world, during the tribulation period. But we also have a sobering reminder for us here today. Listen, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I, I, I pray it's today. Truly, I do. That, that you know, and, and that there is a day coming as we read through the book of, of Revelation, as I understand it, my eschatology, my end times belief system is that God will rapture his church. He's going to take the righteous to heaven. And then he's going to begin to pour out his wrath. But even then he's not finished because he's a God of love who wants nobody to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. People say, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, you have no idea how much God has gone through to, to, for, to save you from hell. But if you go to hell... It won't be because God doesn't love you and did everything. It will be because you refused it. It'll be your choice. People send themselves to hell. And so we need to understand that God's love for us is, is that way. That as, as we read and we appreciate what's coming down the road, hey, listen, I'm, I'm wanting to be raptured, but look, we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know when that's going to be, but here's what we do know. We know that is appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment.